Good morning, church. I hope you are happy to be here, as happy as I am, I promise, in the whole room. I was the most excited to come this Sunday morning so I could deliver a word from the Lord to people that I love and people that I know, and so I'm glad to be here. While I'm preaching here, uh, Joseph Shulam is preaching at the East Murfreesboro campus. I want to make mention of that. So as a church, God has done an amazing thing in a partnership that North Boulevard has had with Joseph Shulam for a 50-year period of time, we've been partners. Joseph Shulam is a missionary in Israel, started churches, seen disciples made, and you guys in your generous gifting has been part of that discipleship work. Can we just praise God for 50 years of partnership with him? I'll, uh, I'll be watching his sermon later, so if, uh, if you join me in doing that, then you'll get two sermons this week, which has to put a star in your crown in heaven in some way, shape, or form. Um, so I will be watching that later, and we'll just enjoy the preaching of God's Word. Uh, last week, if you were here, uh, we talked about Jesus as bread of life. Um, some of you would have been at the 9 o'clock service, and if you went to the 9 o'clock service, the sermon cut off halfway. So um, I didn't get to drive this point home. What I was saying in the sermon um, is that if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. And then something really interesting happened this week, and I immediately thought of, of you. I went into my girl's room, and my um, almost two-year-old baby girl was crying. I went in there trying to help put her to sleep. I pick her up out of the crib. I begin to rock her slowly on my shoulder, and I sing this song. I sing the exact antithesis of the sermon I preached last week. This is what I sing. I sing, hush, little baby, don't say a word. Daddy's gonna buy you a mockingbird. And then I sing, if that mockingbird doesn't sing, daddy's going to buy you a diamond ring. I told her, I'm instilling this message. And I said, if you're not okay, don't worry, stuff is on the way. That's what I told my daughter last week, which is the exact opposite of the sermon I preached. So if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. We don't need more stuff, all right? That's the sermon. This week, we continue with the I am statements of Jesus. We're in the Gospel of John. The claim that Jesus is enough is a massive claim. But the claims just continue. And he just he speaks about who he is as God among us in such massive ways. We have to capture these thoughts. And we just need to get in our head exactly who he is and how we can walk with him. To help you do that, I'm going to reference another song. It's past Thanksgiving, so I can do this, right? I can reference a Christmas song. This is Bing Crosby. October 1st, 1943, records a song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. It's recorded from the perspective of a World War II soldier who's overseas with this deep longing in his or her heart to come home for the holidays. And it's a beautiful song. I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. But it ends with this melancholy note, if only in my dreams. That's how the song ends. And it appeals, it spoke right to the heart of the American people and soldiers in the middle of World War II. So it immediately, after just one month of being released, it was in the top of the charts for 11 weeks in a row. It was number three. I don't know two and one. They must have been good. But it was number three in the, in the charts for 11 weeks in a row. It uh, got Bing Crosby his fifth gold record in 1943. It was the most requested song at USO shows. USO shows are USO is a nonprofit that puts on show for the armed forces. And this is the song they wanted. Most requested, bar none. It is even said from a magazine called 
Yank, a GI magazine, that Crosby, a quote, accomplished more for military morale than anyone else in that era with this song. Isn't that something? What is it about the song that would top the charts, stay around for 77 years? This is the 77th year. And in January 2nd of this year, it broke 50 and the top 100 songs of the year. 77 years later. So what is it about the song that speaks that directly to the human heart? Here's what I believe it is about the song. Everyone wants to go home. Everybody. So you don't have to be a soldier to hear that song and for it to hit home with you. The, the big question I want to ask you, and this is actually, a, I'm not trying to step on your, your toes or get in your, your feels. I'm not trying to manipulate anything, but I'm wondering if you would just do a thought experiment with me. Can you locate your home on a map in your brain right now? Can you locate it on a map? So for some of you, that's the most complicated question I could have possibly asked you, either because you've moved so many times in your life, or maybe you just come from a different continent, and you're, and you're back here now, and you're trying to readjust from being overseas. I'm smiling, because that's the case uh, of a family in the room. Or maybe home for you is just miserable growing up, and so it doesn't feel like home. You have bad experiences. Could be home is the place you think of when you were being raised as a child, um, for some people, even in their late 60s and 70s, that's where they think of. Home is like the childhood years. It could be the place where you raise children, if you got to do that. Maybe now they're empty nesters, and maybe now you're in a different place, but you think of home as that particular place. I don't know where you think of. Can you locate it on a map? Many Americans can't. It's just hard to pin it. Where's home? But your heart longs for it. And the promise of home is the promise of true love, it's a promise of fathering and mothering. It's a promise of family that will stay beside you. And it's a promise of something permanent. And this is why most Americans have a difficult time. The promise of home is the promise of permanency, where you can be like, I, I'm familiar with that place, and it's familiar to me. I'm familiar to it. So the, the big thing that Jesus is going to say in our, our John 10 passage today, he's going to roll out this claim that he is the door to your forever home. So all of the promises of home you desire to be kept in your heart, he's the door to that home. And the homes that we've experienced on this earth just point to him as the ultimate place of rest, the ultimate place of security, the ultimate place of love, and where you really will find a relationship with your Father in heaven. So I've been praying this week that, first of all, if you have never walked through your door home, you would do that today. Some of you have just never gone across that threshold home. I pray you would do that. I've also prayed for some of you, the rest of you, who were like, man, I found Jesus and, and was introduced to home with him a long time ago. I pray that your hearts would be settled in the holiday season. And rather than being busy trying to create the perfect home and, and just kind of let Jesus see that home over the holidays, that you would actually find your home with Jesus. You would find home with him this holiday season. So that's the big promise. Jesus is the door to your forever home. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. I want you to, to turn to John 9 because we're actually going to catch up to the story in John 9 before we hit the point in John chapter 10 about Jesus being your home. Uh, the, 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 the key thing I think is important when we read the Gospels is to realize there were not chapter divisions when it was first written, and that's going to come into play today like never before because John 9 needs no bridge into John 10 
It's the same story. And the context of John 9 really seals a few key points in John 10 that we have to capture. So here's what's going on. John chapter 9 includes this story of a a man born blind. Jesus' disciples see the man and they ask a question that's interesting to us, but would have been a pretty common question in their day. The question is, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? That's common because punishment from God which is this blindness in their minds, would have only followed sin. So somebody's at fault. That's why he's blind. Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not about that. Nobody sinned. It's just that the glory of God is going to be made revealed in his life. That's why he's blind. After he said this, he does something that is pretty, pretty interesting. He spit on the ground. He made some mud. And then he covered the man's eyes with the mud. Unnecessary, if you know Jesus. He could have just said, see, and the man would have seen. He could have touched him. But I think he's doing this So that the man would then go, like Jesus says, wash in the pool of Siloam. And the first time he washes and he can see, he gets the mud off of his eyes, he doesn't see Jesus. So he has a voice of this man that's healed him, but he hasn't laid eyes on him. And that comes into the story a little bit later. People begin to ask questions. The first question people are asking is, is this the actual man who was born blind? Because, man, we haven't seen this kind of stuff in all of Israel. So they're debating. I don't think he's actually the blind man. I think this is another guy who looks like the blind man. But then the the blind man speaks up and he says, no, I am the man. The the crowds question him. How were your eyes open, they asked. He replied. And this is the whole story. Very simple. The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam. That's a pool called Scent. He told me to wash. So I went and I washed. Then I could see, you guys in the room know everything that he knew. This is how it went down. Very simple story. This is the, the, the gist. But there's a problem. The Pharisees really don't want this to be true. They don't want it to be true because if this man named Jesus actually performed this miracle, then his popularity will continue to increase. Their influence will decrease. You can know this about the Pharisees. They desire control. They desire control, and this man, Jesus, is a threat to their control, religious control over the the crowd. So here's what happens. The Pharisees don't believe the story. They have to bring in the boy's parents, and they say, first of all, we got two questions. First question is, is this your actual son, and was he born blind? Can you just give us that as a lead-in to this kind of investigation? The parents say, yeah, this is our son. He was born blind. The second question is, how was he healed? And the parents are reluctant to answer that. Check out this this answer. They say, well, ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, check this out, would be put out of the synagogue. That's no small sentence in the Bible. The Pharisees are outlawing testimonies about Jesus Christ. If you testify that Jesus has done something great enough to validate his claim that he's actually the Messiah, you're done. You're out of your Jewish community. And that's no small thing. Like, you don't get the family environment that you're experiencing right now. You're out. So the parents don't want to get kicked out. So they're like, well, talk to the boy. He's old enough to answer your question. The boy's response is this. The the grown man who was born blind, his response is this. Well, nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's like, man, I was blind and now I see. Why are you holding that against me? And why are you holding that against the guy who healed me? Notice this. This man should have been celebrated by the Pharisees. He's one of theirs. But instead, they're threatening him. They reply, 
You were steeped in sin at birth. Have you ever seen somebody stop the logical argument and they just go right after the character assassination? That's because this is getting out of their hands. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So we don't know for how long. We know that it's long enough that it's significant. His parents didn't want this to happen to them. It really mattered. It hurt. Now he's on his own. Now he doesn't have a home. Now he can't just go into the synagogue and meet with his Jewish community. Here's the whole setup. Jesus hears about this guy being kicked out. He's kicked out for the sake of Jesus. Jesus hears about the man. He goes to find him, understand the the day and age. He doesn't have, like, Facebook Messenger to just ping him real quick. He doesn't have GPS. He's searching for this man. I don't know how long he searched, but he finds the man, and he says to the man, Do you believe... And the Son of Man, this question of Jesus is to prompt faith and thus salvation in the man. Jesus is the first person in the story and so far the only person in the story, even including this man's own parents, who actually cares about him. So he finds him. He asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The guy says, very honestly, I don't know. I don't know who he is. If you'll tell me about him. Jesus says, well, I'm the one speaking to you. I am he. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, This is the whole scene. So you have a man who was once blind, now can see he's bowing down at Jesus' feet. Jesus is receiving that worship. If Jesus is not God, he stops the worship. All other prophets stop that kind of worship. He says, I'm receiving this worship. This man who was once cast out is now right here. And he's going through a door that the Pharisees know nothing about. He's entering into worship of Jesus the Messiah, and all of the promises of home are his. But the Pharisees are now gathering around, and they're watching the scene take place. Jesus then directs the teaching of John chapter 10 at him and at the Pharisees. All of the rebukes in John chapter 10 are going to be at the Pharisees, because they're gathering. This is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, is how Jesus starts his teaching. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He's speaking indirectly. It's a parable. Jesus just begins a story. He's not even yet explicitly speaking about himself. He's just talking. If you don't go through the door, you're a thief and a robber. You don't mean anything good for the sheep if you don't access them the way that God has told you to access them. Then he says, but but if you enter by the door, you must be the rightful shepherd of the sheep. He continues, to him, the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. They're still not understanding what he's saying. But this this image is so beautiful and strong that it's actually worth us diving deeper into it in a few weeks. The image of a shepherd who just calls, and the sheep know his voice, and they come right to him. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them. Notice this language. He's not driving the sheep from behind them. You you might have seen shepherds who do that, or maybe even just sheep herding dogs that will do that. In the ancient Near East, the shepherds would know the sheep so intimately, he's actually walking out ahead of them. And so long as he's talking, Jesus says, the sheep just follow his voice because they know his voice. This is what he says. A stranger, however... They will not follow, but they will flee from the stranger, for they don't know the voice of strangers. They didn't understand his figure of speech, so he kind of has to just go direct. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody who just didn't get it the first time you said it? 
That's me all the time with my children, right? You say something, like they don't get it. You try it a different way. You go a little bit more direct with your statement. He goes so direct that he just hits the point. Here he says, okay, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. I'm the door. So we're going to get into what that means in a second. But here's the first thing that it means. Let me set the record straight, Jesus is saying. This guy has been kicked out of a door. It's not an authorized door. And, and you're playing this role as if you were the access point to God. You're the access point to the family of God. And Jesus says, no, I'm the door. He's mine, I'm the door. All right? Then he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So at this point, he's referencing those who are his contemporaries and anyone else who's tried to grab hold of God's sheep and lead them in their own way. I'm the door, he says. Repeats it. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. That's not in and out of salvation. That just literally means in and out of the enclosed safe place so that you can eat and drink and have nourishment for your soul. I'm the door. You'll find salvation with me. You'll find soul nourishment with me. I am the only door. Now he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. They're beginning to pick it up. They are the thief. They're the robbers. I, I grew up my whole life thinking immediately he's talking about Satan himself. But interestingly, he's talking about these men who are getting access to God's sheep in malevolent ways. That's, that's the reading, and it's an incredible one. Here's the image that he's trying to set up. So if you're a shepherd in the ancient Near East, there are two different type of sheep pens. He kind of references both in his little parable. The first is that of the village or the city pen. And oftentimes multiple uh, sheepfolds would come into the pen. There would be a gatekeeper who would watch the sheep through the night. Then the shepherds would come back in the morning and introduce themselves to the gatekeeper. Because they are the true shepherd of the sheep, the gatekeeper would open up the gate. The sheep would hear their one shepherd's voice and they could walk out of the gate pen. The other he makes reference to is this kind of a countryside sheep pen. So shepherds would take their sheep on long escapades, sometimes for weeks in the warmer weathers and on countryside hills to graze and to feed and to find pasture. And Jesus says in these sheep pens, there's this enclosed area. No one comes into that from the walls unless you're up to no good. But I am the door. Once I bring the sheep into safety, I literally, my very self, will lay down at the entrance of this enclosed area so that the sheep are safe, so that they come and go through me. And no predator has access to the sheep. I'm that guy. I lay myself down. I'm the one who's with the sheep. And I'm the authorized one to be with the sheep. The sign that he's the authorized one is first he gets his authority from God according to Daniel chapter 7. But they don't know that yet. The second thing that they can actually see is what Jesus is saying. Watch the whole thing play out. I call and they listen to me. Just look at the responses of the people. They know my voice. They heed my call. And that's the sign to you that I'm the true shepherd. Here's his point. There's two that we're going to get to, but here's the first one we're going to talk about today. There is no other way home but through Jesus. There's no other way home. There's no other access point to your true home, your true dwelling. At home is where your father is. At home is where your faith grows and where your fears subside. At home is where you're truly secure, truly loved. You ever wonder, like, how will I know in the end that I'm saved? Jesus says, that's through me and only through me. A few months ago, we 
preach through Deuteronomy as a congregation. And I was given the, the text concerning Jerusalem being the one true place of God's appointed worship. That's, that's the place you must go. I made reference to the fact that Jerusalem itself pointed to Jesus as the one access point to God. And in that sermon, I showed this stat. It's still mind-boggling to me. So I want to mention this again because I, I just think it's worth exploring. Here's the stat. 65% of American Christians believe there are multiple paths to God. I'll read it again. And let's just sit in the uncomfortable nature of that for a minute. Happy holidays, all right? 65% of American Christians believe that there are multiple paths to God. I believe that this shift in thinking in the American church is due to the pressure of a few key lies of the evil one, and we're going to get to that. I believe that's why we're seeing an increased percentage. And this was in 2008. You and I would both probably reckon that that's gone up, not down, in the last few years. Jesus says, however, I am the door. Just as exclusive as his claim from two weeks ago, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you try to enter by any other way, you're up to no good, and we all know it. I'm the, I'm the door. So why does he get to say he's the door? Why are there not any others? Here are at least a few biblical points of evidence that he's the only qualified one to be the door. The true shepherd who brings true salvation to the sheep has to be first perfect himself, has to live a perfect human life. That way, number two, he could be an efficient or sufficient sacrifice for sin. He has to fulfill the law and the prophets. He has to conquer death forever and be the one mediator between God and man. This is the position that Jesus is claiming in your life. Some of you have come to Jesus in this way. There is nobody else. There is no other way. There's not human striving. There's not human expression. There isn't me at my very best. There is no other way but Jesus, who's accomplished the work of God and now who has laid himself down on my behalf so that I could have access to the Father. This is why the early preaching of the apostles sounded like this. This is Peter. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. Here's Paul in a really beautiful passage. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. In Christ, he was not counting people's sins against them. That's not true for outside of Christ. But this reconciliation ministry happens in Christ. This is how it happens. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. This great exchange. So that then you could have the opposite exchange and you could be the righteousness of Christ in him and go home. And be welcomed home just as he would welcome in Christ himself. Come in. Come home. This is the great exchange. That's why Jesus is the door to your forever home. Now, if we don't preserve this teaching in the church, two things are at stake. Actually, a lot's at stake, but here's two things. And I don't think it's being preserved all that well. That's why 65% are shifting away. Here are two things that are at stake. First, if you don't preserve this teaching, this doctrine, true worship is at stake. The only real way to worship Christ is as sufficient and as supreme. I'm going to say that again. The only way to worship Christ is as the sufficient one and as the supreme one. All right? So true worship is at stake if we don't hold to this teaching. And here's the other thing that's at stake. Missional urgency. Missional urgency. You want to like really get a fire in your belly 
for mission, for disciple making. Here's how you get a fire in your belly. Ready? Jesus is the door. You catch that? That breeds a sense of missional urgency. Jesus is the door. And there is a, there's a homelessness in the world today, and I can be part of the ministry of reconciliation to bring people to the door. There's no home outside of Christ. So I've got three questions for you to, to combat some of those pressures and those lies that come right at this one. Please answer for yourself. And if you've never probed these things because Satan's distracting you from that, like you're like, I'm thinking about Christmas presents right now. All right? Or if you're like, man, I'm, my mind is in how behind I am on preparing the meal that we're supposed to be having this afternoon. Okay, hold on for a minute. Probe your own thinking for these three questions. Here's number one. Are you beginning to buy the lie that people will be just fine without Jesus? Do you think of your neighborhood, of your state, of the world as all right if they do not come to faith in Jesus Christ? So somebody in the room is like, well... What about the innocent man in Africa who maybe hasn't heard of this? Would he be saved? Of course, the innocent man in Africa would be saved. The problem is there is no innocent man in Africa. That's the issue. The scriptures are very clear. There's a standard that God has laid out for his people, and if the only way you access that is even by creation itself, if that's the only access you have, there's a standard that God has laid out for his people, and no one has lived up to it. No one is righteous, not even one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So are you buying the lie, the first lie, the kind of fundamental one, that everyone is just fine without Jesus in the world? The second one, and this one I think is probably why the majority of people are beginning to make a shift away from the exclusive claim of Jesus. So really probe your heart on this one. Are you buying the lie that comes from our very culture that you can only respect people you agree with? So some of you, as soon as I put up this statistic, and as soon as we made the point, Jesus is the way home, some of your stomachs begin to kind of squirm a little bit, and you're like, have a a deep sense of compassion and respect and, and even kind of just love, admiration for those who are outside of the faith of Jesus. And you're wondering if I'm telling you not to respect them. I'm not saying that. There's a false dichotomy in our country. Here's the false dichotomy. You have to agree if you're going to show respect. And the only people you would truly respect are the ones to whom you agree. This isn't true. This is just simply not the case. So rather than shifting your core conviction about who Jesus is, we're taught in the scriptures to shift our approach to people. You're taught by God to actually love people who don't think like you, to welcome them in, to eat with them, to dine with them, to to shower them with love. So I really like Tim Keller's argument on this. Tim Keller says that there's a form of open-mindedness in our culture today, and that's what we all want, some kind of form of open-mindedness. There's a form of open-mindedness in our culture today. It goes like this. You want to be an open-minded person, so you have to hold a belief in your brain and then simultaneously be able to hold a contrary belief in your brain. This is the open-mindedness of Oprah Winfrey, which I know that doesn't hit with a lot of people in the room because we've kind of moved on from her. But here's what she says. She says, I am a Christian who believes that there are many paths to God. So you hold one particular core conviction in your brain, and you have to also be able to hold a contrary conviction in your brain. That open-mindedness is a lie. 
That's actually duplicity. It's hypocritical, and it's steeped in dishonesty. Tim Keller argues, and I like this train of thought, he argues there's a different form of open-mindedness, and that is that you would hold a core conviction, and then your open-mindedness is made evident, not by you accepting the contrary conviction of the person that you're talking to, but by how you treat them. You will be seen as an open-minded people when you love people who don't think like you. You don't have to shift your ways of thinking. You just have to shift your attitude towards them to love them and love them deeply and love them well. Here's the open-mindedness God wants from you. Invite somebody into your home who doesn't think like you. Love them, shower them with blessings, speak highly of them, give gifts to them, bless your neighbors, but hold fast to the conviction of Jesus as the door. Here's the third question. Are you buying the lie that you are not fit to help somebody else find God? So really clearly, those of you in the room who have been here for a few years at North Boulevard, you've heard teaching on, go make disciples. Go make disciples. And if you, if you believe that Jesus are, are not just fine without Jesus and that they actually need the one true door, then the, the next thing that Satan will attack you on is, yeah, but you are definitely not the person God would use to help bring them into the door. I just want to combat that. I want to speak a truth over your life. Are you ready? If there's somebody in your life who needs Jesus, and I know that there is, God will assign you to that person to bring them to the door, and you can do it, all right? You can do it. So don't believe any of these lies. Uh, I kind of think immediately of this illustration. Do you know Greyhound, uh, the bus, every year is in partnership with what they, they call Home Free Program. So um, Home Free Program exists to bring runaway children and teens back to their homes. And Greyhound's role in this is that they'll give a free ticket to anybody who's a runaway who wants to come home. Here's a staggering number. I think it's too small on the screen. 400 people a year ride home for free on a Greyhound bus in this home-free program. 400 children and teens a year. And this is only one of such programs in the world today. As soon as I saw this, I thought, um, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a corny preacher at all. And I know you already see where this is where this is going. But I do want to make this point. I think Greyhound helps us with this. This is you. This is your role. You're the home free program. You're the ones who provide that kind of connection between where somebody is as a runaway and what home it is for them as well. Like this is your job. This is who you're supposed to be. So that's the point number one. There's no other way home. But through Jesus, we lead people to the door. Here's the second thing that's, that's made evident, especially as you know the context of John 10. Jesus makes life all about loving his sheep. All right? Jesus makes life all about loving the sheep. This, this is where you begin to imitate him, and you probe your own heart about how you're doing loving other people. You, I know you really want to do that this morning. So let me, let me show you what happens when you don't do that well for Many generations, God was watching the caregivers of Israel, the shepherds of Israel. This is political leaders, this is religious leaders. You could even take this down to like fathers and mothers. He was watching the shepherds of Israel do everything poorly. Here's what he kept seeing them do. He says, you who call yourself shepherds, you eat the curds, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the choice animals, but here's the rebuke. You do not care for the flock. You have not strengthened the weak. You've not healed the sick. 
or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So it's like, well, what is God going to do in response? It's the same kind of thing that you used to do when you'd fuss at your child. You're like, do I have to come in there? Do I have to come down there? Do I have to come back there? This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. Since you can't do it, I'm going to come down myself. And I'm going to take care of the sheep that you've neglected. And that's what Jesus is doing in John 10. You're kicking people out. You're abusing. You're oppressing. You're wanting something from the sheep, and you haven't served the sheep. I'll do it right. I'll take care of them. So the point then in the context is Jesus makes life about loving sheep. Think about those who are underneath your care right now. If you're a a parent, you have children in your home. If you are a classroom teacher, you have students. And man, they are so easy to love, aren't they, all the time. Uh, if, If you are an employer, you have employees who are under your care. If you are a government worker, there are citizens who you're responsible for. How are you doing loving the ones you lead? I used, to, um, I used to share my classroom, and I'm not talking about a particular school or classroom that anybody in the room knows about. This is when I was a teacher in a different part of the state. I used to share a classroom, and there would be a teacher who would come in and teach one particular period in the classroom that I shared. And this teacher was just a long, long time exasperated teacher with her students. So as soon as the students would sit down, she's unloading, not content, she's just unloading her wrath on them all day. Wrath, 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 wrath. She'd be like, put your books away, that's the bell, this would go the whole class, pack it up, get on out of my class, right? They would leave. I would sit there feeling beat up myself. Like she just unloaded on them. Then she'd look at me and she'd vent to me, students today, man, can you believe them? Here's how they behave, here's how they act, here's how they talk and glad they don't do anything that I say to do, blah, 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 blah. She'd slam something down and then she'd walk out of my class. I'd just sit there and it was like the room had been darkened by the whole presence of this, this thing. So I would sit in the heat of it and I'd ask myself this question. What has to happen in your life where you would sacrifice care to try to gain control? How easy is it to do that? When you're like, man, this isn't how I wanted it to go. I'm going to sacrifice my role as, as, a, as a provider of care to try to increase control in this area. Some of you have a child. Man, you're just, you're right here. And by, I'm right here with you. Where it's like, for now, I'm going to sacrifice care because I need to get control. I'm going to get control. And maybe it turns from one day to a, to a week to a month to a year. And maybe you're doing this with your employees. Care is way down here on your list right now. You're like, I'm going to get things under control. And so all of a sudden, you become the very thing that God rebukes in Ezekiel 34. It's like, you're getting a lot out of them, but you haven't cared for them. So the question is, do you love the ones you lead? Here's a second question. Are you aware of the needs of those that you lead? Could you say about them personally, I know what they need in life, and I know where they're hurting, and I know where their, their struggles are? And here's the third one. This is where the rubber hits the road. Are you willing to lay down your own desires to meet their needs? The beauty of Jesus is that he's a shepherd who prioritizes the sheep, not himself. That's what he models for us today. Jesus is the door to your forever home. In 1942, going back to a soldier story, 1942, a soldier who had been injured 
began working as part of an engineering company, the 341st Engineers. His name is Carl K. Lindley. He was once walking this very Alaskan highway when he and the team that he works with noticed that one of the signs, mile marker signs, had been hit by a bulldozer and needed to be repaired. So he was given the assignment of repairing the sign. He repaired the mile marker sign just as he was told to do, and then out of a little creativity as a homesick soldier, he put up another sign. And this is the sign that pointed 2,835 miles away to Danville, his home. This is a little taste of home he put up beside this mile marker. People caught on that, that he had added a sign, so somebody else had added their home sign. Somebody else had done it. Today, there are over 80,000 signposts home at what is called Signpost Forest in Yukon. This is in Alaska. If you were to drive down the Alaska Highway, you could pull over and see this whole forest of signs that are pointing people home. You could add your own, and no one would care. I've looked into the picture. There are signs from every state in the United States of America, signs from various countries, signs from different provinces in Canada. Can I ask you this? Why is this a thing? Why is signpost forest even a thing? I'll tell you why. Everyone longs home. Everyone. Everyone. And for some of you, your heart hasn't landed in it yet. And you're busy making your house the coziest little holiday home you can so that Jesus could make a little visit on December 25th and smell the nice candles and see your beautiful decorations. When instead, the gift of Christmas isn't that he would just come and visit your home, but that he would be your home. He would be your place of rest. He'd be where you have communion with your father. He'd be where you are eternally secure. He'd be a home that would never fade from your memory, never have to try to retrace the hallway where your bedroom was. It's a home that never fades, that stays with you forever. And he introduces you to a family. He calls us sheep. It's not an insult. He loves his sheep. He introduces you to this family. And he teaches you to love the family, not just try to get from it. Love it. Love the people that you have. Create a home for them in love. And in that way, you follow the good shepherd, who is also the door. So if you've never walked through that door, I really do want to encourage you to, to do so. You can grab me at any point this morning. We could talk about walking through that door for the very first time in your life. If you've walked through it a long time ago, and you're like, dude, this is too fundamental for me, I know the door, then I want to challenge you to let your heart rest at home in him. Let me pray for you, and then we'll sing a song. Lord, we love you, and we're thankful for these claims that point us to who you are so that we can know who we are. I believe there's a great homesickness that has settled in our country, and I pray that people would come home. Thank you for Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the bread for our souls. He is the vine. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. We pray all of this in his glorious name. Amen.